This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I hope you can hear me well here. Yeah. Right, so thanks a lot for attending the session. It's really great to be here this morning and quite, quite a turnout, so it seems to be some, some interest in the topic here. Um, so, by way of introduction, if I can just introduce ourselves. My name is Andre Blau, and Hank van Bouillon on, on my right here. We're both from PwC's actuarial risk and quants practice here in Johannesburg. Um, and our focus in, in our practice is really this whole area of new emerging area of actuarial data science. Uh, Hank is a qualified actuary and a manager in our team, and we've got um, two, three other managers in our Cape Town team, and uh, all of us focus in, in the space. So what are we doing and where are we coming from? Well, about a year and a half ago at PwC, we started to look at this, this technology, machine learning and AI, and, and the way it was growing worldwide. And we really came to a conclusion that, you know, we have to understand and invest in actually in research and experimentation with this technology to actually understand it ourselves and to be able to assist our clients. So we started off with an asset development program at PwC globally, where we invested a lot in, in research and, you know, experimenting with data sets, building POC models, etc., and really trying to understand where we can apply this kind of uh, techniques in the whole space of financial risk measurement, credit, market, insurance, operational, et cetera. What are the pitfalls? What of these algorithms work? What doesn't work? How do you manage the risk of these algorithms? How do you validate the machine learning model? How do you deploy it? And in, in our journey, we, we've really learned a lot. And, you know, we'd like to share some of that learnings with you guys today. Uh, luckily, we've also had the benefit of of sharing notes and also learning from what's happening with PwC in globally, where some of our firms have been on a similar journey. Um, but having said that, I'm sure you, many of you guys have gone through a similar journey and have also experimented with these techniques and actually have also discovered a lot and also might have built some models. So, you know, this is a workshop. We would like to hear from you. Uh, so please feel free to interrupt any time and, you know, ask questions or we'll share some of your thoughts and view. So Henk is going to do, uh, take us through the contents of the program, and we'll take it from there. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Andre. So good morning to, to all of you. And uh, first of all, as, as Andre mentioned, it, it is a workshop. Um, so in other words, it is quite technical in nature, what we will be running through as well, and also interactive. So while we've done quite a bit in the space and we, we have some learnings to share with you, is naturally with the way that the, the space is evolving, uh, we definitely don't know everything and there's a lot that needs to be learned. So in other words, if you have any learnings in your space, you have any experience, uh, please go for it, share the, that knowledge, um, and, and let's 
keep that, that interactive uh, flow going. So in terms of the session itself, uh, so Andre will just kick us off with uh, what, we, what we're really seeing globally uh, in terms of AI and ML, just to, to really set the scene. So while the focus of the workshop is, is techniques and, and model design risk management, um, I think it's important to understand the global context and the greater context to just get us, get us going. Then we're quickly going to do a, a live poll. Um, so recently at, at PwC, we had our first uh, responsible AI seminar um, where we hosted the banks in, on a very similar uh, topic. Um, and we did a poll and we just like to see also how does it compare between, between actuarial and, and the, the banking space. Um, which, while similar, I don't think it's, it's exactly the, the same audience. Then we'll move over to the topic of, of machine learning trustworthiness. Um, so I think all of us are sold in, in terms of that there's, there's really um, very large capacity in the space in, in using these techniques. But building trust in the technology is, is one of the key enablers through which we will actually be able to use um, the, the techniques and the, the, the technology. Then we'll, we'll briefly touch on performance risk um, and just say what is performance risk, what does it entail, um, and, and talk a bit about that. And then diving into each of the, the individual components, really, getting into the, the more technical nuts and bolts of it on robustness, so, so model robustness, few different aspects to that. And fairness um, is the, the next topic, then interpretability and explainability. Um, very, very hot topic at the moment. Lots of research going on in that field at the moment. Uh, so very interesting, and then we'll, we'll summarize and and conclude. Then I think naturally just a, another note finally is that each of these topics on their own are a are quite a vast field of research at the moment. So we definitely won't be able to cover all of it. We are trying to highlight essentially what the, the, the most important pieces are and then giving an overview of that. As we said, we can spend a whole session just on, on one of these topics. Um, so we're looking to just highlight the, the most important pieces rather than try to, to cover everything. So I'll hand over to Andre just on what the, the current trends are. Okay, thanks, Inc. Okay, so yeah, we're going to just start off and take a global view and just where the tech is going and you know, what's been happening up to now and where it's likely to go to. Clearly, a very fast-moving space. So probably useful to kind of start with this uh, perspective of how algorithms have evolved over the last 50 odd, 70 odd years. Um, you know, we're all very familiar with the GLM space, which has been really been, um, you know, just the state of uh, statistical modeling up to probably the, the 80s and 90s. Uh, and it's really from sort of late 80s where computing power really started to take off. Uh, those of you who were building models those days and, uh, you know, you would, would remember that I think it was only in the mid-80s you could model effectively nonlinear relationships on a, on a desktop computer. But what we started seeing in the, the 90s is really these early generation of machine learning algorithms, primarily tree-based uh, decision tree type algorithms, started to take off and you know, some of the kernel uh, methods, uh, SVM, etc. And then sort of towards the beginning of the century, uh, the early generation of neural nets started to take off. They were very simple multi-layer perceptron, feed-forward type neural nets. Uh, didn't have the deep layers, uh, hidden layers, and fairly limited in terms of, of their capability. But things really started to take a turn around about 2012, uh, when computing power really got to a stage where you can model uh, you know, very complex big data and nonlinear data relationships with uh, neural nets and many hidden layers. Um, you know, and that started to you know, give rise to a lot of different neural net type uh, architectures, convolutional neural nets, recurrent neural net, etc. 
And since then, it's it's really been been just been growing every year. Or, uh, you know, you hear about new types of neural net algorithms coming, and reinforcement learning, uh, transfer learning, uh, generative models that we see recently. So that this kind of growth is, is continuing unabated. Uh, a very interesting aspect, you know, if you look at this kind of uh, picture, uh, the theory of AI has been around for 50 years. The application of AI has been around for five to seven years. It's really only deep learning. We started uh, uh, taking off around about 2012. We have multiple hidden layers in neural network that made deep learning uh, models possible, and that's really the true application of AI. Uh, I think another trend or worth to note is the fact that obviously in the GLM space, not much is happening. It is what it is. Whereas, you know, the new algorithms, the capacity of the new algorithms to model big data and nonlinear data relationships are just getting more and more powerful, and the gap between uh, traditional GLA models and these newer type models are just widening. Uh, uh, we all know that, you know, GLM space is still where a lot of institutions are building their models because it's easy, it's interpretable, and it's simple. Uh, and you know, going forward, we're probably good like to you. Know, you want to, you could see see uh, GLM space also started to being replaced by these new type techniques. Okay, I think point is then. Well, you might argue and say, well, okay, maybe we towards the end of this thing is going to stop. It's been growing at a phenomenal rate. Well, probably worthwhile to look at some further developments in the technology space that could have an impact on the rate of growth in these algorithms. One of them is this whole new development quantum computing. It's a very fascinating field where quantum physics and computing you know, chip design are starting to, to merge now. And, you know, there's some very powerful uh, processes and capabilities, 100 million times faster than current uh, processes, uh, that's now started to, to become possible. Um, and this is not miles away. You know, it's going to take some time before these kind of quantum chips are in normal computers but are already available on cloud. You know, and that opens up a lot of opportunities. Of course, AI and machine learning is expected to, get, to uh, gain dramatically from this. I mean, you know, any machine learning model is really large-scale you know, mathematical optimization in multidimensional space. And, you know, this, this quantum machine learning opened up all new possibilities into, you know, modeling or introducing probabilis probabilities into neural nets, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, another development is the whole thing of IoT and streaming data. We all know that data is you know, doubling every two years in terms of uh, variety and volume, but that's also likely to change with IoT because you know, there's edge devices, uh, 5G coming up is going to generate a lot of streaming data, uh, create a massive amount of new data that needs to be modeled and interpreted and, and so on, and, and that's uh, most definitely will have an impact on the development of the technology. And then we'll also start to see some really exponential growth in ML and AI algorithm research. I don't know if you guys follow and use Archive, the you know, online research database for, for technical papers. When I mean, you look at the publications of Archive in machine learning algorithms, that's also growing now, you know, doubling every two years. So you're starting to see this kind of triple exponential growth where, you know, computing power data, algorithm availability, uh, all you know, act together. And generally, the expectation is now, well, sort of the analysts in the space, that you could actually start seeing acceleration of, of developments 
of this kind of technology compared to what we see now. So in terms of projection going forward, well, you know, PwC has made its projection of 15 trillion uh, increase in global GDP uh, by 2013 just because of AI, so other firms have done similar projections. That's kind of longer term. In the shorter term, we, we're really seeing uh, you know, spending of machine learning and now it's really taking off. A lot of these uh, models are now starting to move out of pilot phase into production. Uh, it's, really, it's really moving. Uh, the whole area of regulated space in credit and insurance, et cetera, so far has probably been lagging, uh, what we've seen, you know. But if you start looking at the recent uh, surveys coming up, even there, we, we really start seeing now why widespread adoption. IIF is publishing a survey of 16 international banks. They just recently, in the last week, released, a, very recently released their report. And 42% of, of the banks that I survey now have some machine learning models in production, 45% running pilots. Uh, there's uh, another Bank of England survey that was released a week ago or so ago. Um, of the 300 entities that BOE supervised in the, year, in the UK, 120 of them are so responded, and two-thirds of those, those have some machine learning model in, in production. In fact, I think the, num the average number of application in insurers there of machine learning is something like 7.5 versus 5.5 in banks. So insurers are even leading. So obviously some countries are moving a lot faster and it's definitely now getting traction. Uh, all the indications are there that the technology is really starting to, machine learning started being uh, uh, used on a wide scale, also in a regulated space. Great, thanks, uh, thanks, Andre. So uh, we initially thought of, of doing a live poll. It seems like the tech might uh, drop us. So what we'll just do is we'll just do a, a quick show by or a quick poll by by show of hands. And and I think the the real um, ask here is please participate even if you're if you're on the fence. Um, put up your hand in terms of where you you think you are, and let's get some some good participation going. And at the end of it, we'll also share what we recently saw at our at our seminar with uh, with the banks attending, and then uh, we can. And we can compare the two and, and see if there are some, some similarities. So firstly, in terms of what is the status of AI machine learning adoption in, in your organization? And here we're saying just we can start with, with simpler machine learning. We don't have to go really advanced AI deep neural nets, etc. Uh, we can just start with saying that taking it from the top uh, by a show of hands is um, on the, the AI machine learning side, which of your organizations that you know of currently have no plans in this space by show of hands. Okay, so it seems like everyone has, has started uh, doing something in the space uh, at least. Then secondly, who's, who's currently thinking about it? So who's having sessions, who's exploring the technology? Okay, see quite a, quite a number of hands there. Okay, perfect. So then who's got clearly defined plans? In other words, you've got a machine learning AI roadmap, you've started looking at your frameworks, you've started looking, thinking about the governance around what the technology is surrounding it. Who of you are currently there in your, your maturity? Okay, it's good, few, few. Um, who currently have uh, machine learning pilots in progress? So in other words, you're actively building, haven't fully implemented it yet, but testing, uh, where, where we currently are. So pilots in progress, show of hands. Okay, perfect, that's, uh, that's quite a number. And then some implementations completed. So we've, we've put some, some of these models into actual production. So 
Sure, well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight there at the back, about eight, eight, nine individuals. So I think that's, that's broadly in line with what we saw at, uh, at the, the, the seminar. So sharing what, what we um, have over there is uh, very few organizations have, have no plans. Um, everyone is, is aware of the, the technology. Um, so most, uh, most of the respondents were somewhere about thinking about it and having uh, pilots in progress. Where implementations were completed is it was mostly in, in the less governed spaces. So in other words, where from an organizational point of view, um, it's, it's deemed to be lower risk. And that's really where I think for us it was very interesting because from our point of view and from a model risk point of view, it's actually very, very high risk. Some of the spaces where these machine learning models were being implemented, it's just viewed as low risk because it's from a, almost a regulatory point of view. They're not really governed by um, the regulator, um, IFRS requirements, etc. But still, from an organizational point of view, really, really big uh, model design risk actually sitting there. Perfect. So, in terms of our, our last and, and second, or second and, and final question, what do you see as the biggest challenge to machine learning adoption in your organization? Um, and, and choosing one one of the above, and we'll we'll share our thoughts uh, on that as well. And, and starting off with item number one is ensuring that AI or machine learning models are trustworthy and really understanding what's what's going on. So by a show of hands, it's currently saying that that's the that's the key challenge. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, all right, perfect. Secondly, uh, skill shortage in model development, so your actual build pipeline. So who doesn't have the hands to build these models? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, fifteen, sixteen. Okay, it's, uh, it's a bit more. And then skill shortage in model validation, saying that we can actually build these models, we've got the skills, but how do we actually gain trust about them and put the right amount of governance? Show of hands, model validation. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. All right, perfect. Availability of tools, software, um, not having the proper processing environment, cloud being a constraint. All of those constraints, by a show of hands, availability of tools, software, technology, who, for who is that currently a constraint? One hand at the back there. Okay, sure. It's, uh, it's Maybe it's not surprising that all the open source tools available. Maybe too many tools available. <laughs> Data availability and quality, uh, finally, by show of hands, for who is that currently an issue? Sure, that's, that's quite a number. So I think uh, contrasting this with, with what we saw also broadly in line, I think one, one difference there maybe slightly is uh, data availability and quality seems to be a slightly bigger issue in, in the audience than it was previously. So I, I think the key um, challenge that came out of our, our previous poll was skill shortage um, across the board in, in both model development and model validation. Um, and then some, some way back, um, I think after that was ensuring that uh, machine learning models are trustworthy in, in second place, then data availability and quality, and then also um, similarly availability of tools was, was in, in last place. All right, perfect. So I'm going to hand over to, to Andre and just briefly outlining the, the trustworthiness um, challenge. Okay, so yeah, we're just going to take briefly a kind of broader view on the whole aspect of trustworthiness, look at some polls that's been done internationally in this space, and what, what do we mean as PwC and others also about trustworthiness? It is a large topic, it's very topical, you all hear about AI bias and fairness and so on, and, and really we, we believe unless this whole issue of AI trustworthiness is not addressed effectively, all these fantastic promises about AI might not even be achievable. 
So it's a really critical aspect. Now, what is very interesting, PwC has been doing this uh, poll survey in the U.S. every year for the last number of years, and, you know, we're polling the CEOs, um, ask them questions about AI. And, you know, in the last couple of years, they've always, all, always said, yeah, challenges with implementation, the kind of stuff that we're just not, not covered in a poll, skill shortages, et cetera, were major issues. But the, the emphasis has shifted now because they're obviously a lot further matured on, further down the line and had many AI implementations. So the emphasis this year started to shift towards AI trustworthiness issues. A lot of concerns around vulnerability and disruption to business, potential for bias in AI decision models, lack of transparency, and, you know, difficulty in all governance structure and controlling AI, and, and so forth. So, it is starting to become a, a key issue, um, you know, how do you ensure the trustworthiness of AI? Now, also what we started to see is, you know, initially when you know, everybody looked at this whole AI and machine learning space, so, well, you know, you've got models. It's a piece of software that's going to, you know, basically learn on data and do some kind of prediction, and there's obviously model risk here in terms of bias and interpretability and accuracy and reliability and consistency of predictions. But as the, the technology started to be adopted more widely, you know, it, it became apparent there's kind of broader organizational risk, really. I mean, you have a lot of fintechs that banks have alliances with, and that creates some, some third-party risk. There's really now a larger impact around conduct risk because a lot of those technologies are used in the conduct space. So the, the risk started to, to evolve and, you know, really uh, move broader from model level to organization level to really industry level. You know, a lot of talks now with all this uh, AI being used in asset management and capital market space, that what if these robots start to react in a you know, similar way based on some event and so on, Trump tweeting and it will start to sell, or things like that, and you can really have some, you know, systemic impacts here. So what we are saying is that organizations should start really, you know, have a broad you know, risk management approach to, to AI. I mean, it's a lot further than just the model risk. We're going to talk about model risk and sections following. That's the exciting part for us as, as model builders. But there's a lot of broader social implications in terms of ethics, in terms of edit system, bias would be a huge thing. So you really need a, a broad framework to, to address all these kind of risks holistically. Um, you know, cyber risk and uh, you know, interact with you know, cloud and you know, API theft, etc. All of these kind of related risks also impact on, on the risk of AI. So as PwC, we, we've come up with an approach, and you know, other firms have got similar approaches. But we say you know, AI should be uh, done in a responsible way. What does that mean? Well, that means you know, when you build AI solutions, they must be beneficial. We also see a lot of firms just, you know, getting onto the bandwagon and onto the hype and, you know, just uh, throwing money at machine learning models and, you know, not really looking at a business benefit. I mean, don't spend money on technology for the sake of technology. There's got to be a good business case. There's got to be potential business value. And that business value must be sustainable. And it must also be there for, you know, the broader society and not discriminating against some group. And the other aspect of this is this whole thing of a robust AI system. I mean, it's all about performance risk, and we're going to unpack performance risk a bit detail going forward in, in the session. Uh, and that is all about how well the AI uh, system performs. Is it reliable? You know, can you, uh, is, it fair, is there fairness in the predictions of the AI system? 
is the consistency, repeatability, accuracy, etc. Okay. AI performance risk, we briefly, as I said, just going to look at um, what AI performance risk is and you know, spend the rest of the section, session on that. Um, before we dive into AI performance risk, just a couple of thoughts, I think, on you know, what is new. What do we need to, to do differently and you know, consider in building AI machine learning models? Well, this is a simple diagram. I mean, you, you have an AI agent or machine learning agent which is a really a model that can perform two types of tasks, uh, learning from data and learning from the environment. And that could be a perception task, you know, something like a classification or regression, anomaly detection or whatever, or an action task. You know, it's reinforcement learning and these newer type of models perform an action task, where AI also takes decisions. Now, irrespective of, of those two tasks that need to be performed, there's, there's a couple of things that are new here. First of all, there's automated learning from data. I mean, the ability of these models to, to make accurate predictions is all a function of the data. Uh, a and B are effectively, this uh, algorithm can learn hidden patterns and associations in the data that allow to, to, to perform accurate prediction. Secondly, we deal with unstructured structured and semi-structured data. That, that's a new thing. I mean, even if you build a credit model, you never worry about text, you know, all of a sudden you now need to look to extract features of, you know, to assist the model to learn, and one obviously is to look at this, any text, um, you know, loan description or purpose of the loan, or whatever, start uh, unpacking that, because that might give you insights to learn, get the model to learn, so it creates newer type of, of implications uh, for model errors. Um, multiple models interacting, that's a key feature of machine learning models, you never have just one Rhino Forest, it's not one single decision tree, you have a thousand decisions tree, um, you know, combined into some bootstrapping algorithm. You look at a neural net, it's not a single layer, hidden layer, it's multiple hidden layers. Uh, machine learning model, a very effective, uh, uh, popular techniques, it uses kind of stacking where you combine different uh, algorithms, etc., etc. A lot more sensitivity to, to the data and to the environment. And what we have here is closed form uh, we in the past, so traditionally, we have closed form models or formulas. Yeah, we have algorithms. So you cannot really separate the model definition from the algorithm. You know, the code actually tells you what, what a model does, uh, which creates other implications. So, so it's, it's worth to, to, to really understand those kind of differences. Now, of course, we don't have time yet to go into machine learning algorithms, and I'm sure many of you know a lot of these algorithms, but one useful classification maybe is just to, to look at uh, these models in terms of how they learn, which is a very key aspect. The, the algorithm can't learn from a data it can't predict, or if it can't learn effectively, it won't predict accurately. So supervised learning is a very simple approach. I mean, we're all familiar with supervised learning. It's, uh, uh, really using structured data, it's a sort of class of all the problems in, in banking and, and finance that we've been uh, working on in the past. And really you have, you have a set of labeled data, historical labeled data, default, no default of loan, and the algorithm is learning to predict under the supervision of the, of the labeled data. Uh, and that's really the area where, you know, we want to focus on in the rest of the discussion. So the reason why we're putting up this is to say, well, the techniques that we're going to talk about in the coming sessions is really going to focus on supervised learning because that's a, it's a well-defined space. You know, you can benchmark 
because you've got label data, et cetera, et cetera. Unsupervised learning, things are getting a lot more complex. If he has no label data, I mean, you're going to train the algorithm to you know, identify associations in the data, clustering, uh, learner density estimation, or, or whatever. And, you know, how do you know it's right or wrong? It becomes very, very, very difficult. You have to use benchmarking other type techniques. Reinforcement learning, I mean, yeah, you're trying an algorithm to achieve a, a policy objective uh, with a penalty reward and uh, penalty that gets it wrong and it can adjust its strategy and so on. Very difficult to validate such a model. I mean, I think the current techniques that we're gonna talk about in the coming sessions, you know, nobody's even thought, are oh, you gonna apply that for reinforcement learning? And the same goes for the other new types of learning. So I think the key point here is uh, supervised learning, that's the type of techniques we're gonna talk about. Now, fortunately, uh, a lot of the uh, problems we have in, in credit and insurance, et cetera, policy lapse rate prediction and so forth, all fall into that category. Okay, so what do we mean by uh, performance risk? Um, when you start building machine learning models, there's a couple of new activities and steps that involve that you don't have in traditional model building. Or you might have them, but they, they are a bit different. One key aspect of machine learning models is all aspect of feature engineering. I mean, you've got to extract features from the data, and that sometimes requires a machine learning model in itself um, you know, to kind of model the latent space, uh, to, to extract some, uh, some insights, et cetera, for this model to learn on. Uh, algorithm selection is, is new. You typically don't uh, select one algorithm and you know, formula and build all your models on that. Uh, each and every model uh, problem is going to be different, and you know algorithm that works for one data set won't work on the next data set, even in, a, in the same domain. It's all in the, in the data. So algorithm selection and a, selecting a fit-for-purpose algorithm, and an algorithm that's not too complex, um, you know, for for the problem you try and solve, an algorithm is not going to compromise in terms of interpretability and, and, and complexity unnecessarily, is a key type of decisions. Uh, another aspect is all aspect of hyperparameter optimization. When you build a machine learning model, the algorithm would optimize the model parameters, you know, like we do in, in traditional model building. But there's an outer loop of, of so-called hyperparameters, you know, number of layers in a neural network, uh, number of uh, nodes in a, in a tree, et cetera, et cetera, which also need to be optimized, because that, that could have a major impact on performance. So, there's a lot of uh, algorithms specifically, and it requires a large amount of processing to, to optimize hyperparameters. Now, that can add additional complexity to your model. It can cause overfitting, et cetera, and so on. But the three key, uh, three key ones that we want to talk about, the colored ones, in the next section are really uh, robustness, fairness, and interoperability. Robustness, you know, it's all about uh, out-of-sample variance and, you know, repeatability and so on. Fairness is their bias in the model. And then inter interpretability uh, can we interpret and explain the predictions of the AI model. So those three ones we, we're going to unpack a bit in the next couple of sessions. Any questions, comments at this stage? Nothing. Has uh, anyone learned anything so far? Okay, great. That's uh, it's very, very good. So now we'll be getting into the actual nuts and bolts of it. So we'll getting, be getting slightly more more technical. Um, I think the the early part was just really setting the scene and, and giving some context to to what we what we currently have. So just to get a, a general sense of also where we need to to pitch is how many of you, by a show of hands, 
generally know almost the algorithm landscape? What are the current machine learning algorithms available? Um, let's maybe by a show of hands say, who knows about decision trees, random forest, and neural networks and something in that space? Who's heard of these things and knows a bit about it? Okay, okay, that's, uh, that's, that's very, very good. That's, uh, that's quite a bit, so then we, we can get into to it a bit, uh, a bit more. So I think when it comes to, to robustness, which is one of the, the key machine learning model design risks for, for us, is there's really key, three key items. So in this session, we'll be focusing on, on out-of-sample variants, but repeatability and adversarial noise also two uh, key concepts. So repeatability, just saying that with the, the way that machine learning models are, are structured, um, there is naturally an element of randomness in them, whether you use bootstrapping to construct the data, um, bootstrapping to uh, uh, optimize your hyperparameters, it might actually be a, quite a, a risk that when you, you train your model, uh, in one instance and you train in another instance, you might actually not get, get the same results. In other words, how do you address that repeatability issue for a, a number of uh, different reasons and use cases? And then so also adversarial noise, which is quite a, an interesting topic um, in terms of saying that is your system, your training system vulnerable to someone actually giving you targeted noise data which could throw off your model? So it's something that is happening abroad where models are learning live, where you've got a dynamic um, learning environment uh, where essentially that you throw in noise so that the model doesn't train off of the signal but trains so much off of the noise that it actually throws off the, the accuracy. So absolutely fascinating topic there um, but we'll just go into a bit of detail on, on out of sample variants specifically. So on, on out of sample variants and, and my apologies for it being a, a bit light uh, on the, the grid lines but I think you can, you can get the general idea. I think it's worth just recapping what we mean by underfitting, overfitting, low bias, high variance. And when we, we currently say low, low bias here, we'll, when it comes to fairness, we'll unpack bias in a bit more detail. Here we're just really saying lack of accuracy as, as bias is how we define it in, in this context. So what you can see on the, the left-hand side are the two extreme examples is you've got a number of data points, which is really simple. Um, it, it doesn't matter too much what those data points represent. Is top left is we've got overfitting. So what there happens is you've got, you can see there's a general trend or there's a signal that you're really trying to capture. What you are doing with this model, if you're saying that the orange line is the model that you've trained on the, the data points, is what you're doing there is you are you're really training to the noise as well. So in other words, you're capturing the each of the data points. You've got very uh, low bias. But what then happens is if you've got out-of-sample data, so you've trained your model on this specific data, but now there's some unseen data which the model hasn't actually seen to need to generalize your model. What's going to happen is you're going to generate high variance. So in other words, you're going to have some out-of-sample data and you're going to try to fit the same prediction and it's actually not going to work. Left bottom is you've got high bias, low variance. So in other words, there the model isn't, again, uh, bias in, in the uh, context of accuracy. So there you, in other words, lose a lot of accuracy, but then again, you'll have lower variance um, overall. Ideally, where you want to be is on the right-hand side is where you've, you've got a good trade-off between bias and variance, and, and that's essentially a good fit where you've captured the signal accurate, um, accurately without then fitting to, to the noise too much. And that's just really a, a, a bit of background which would introduce us to one of the, the key trade-offs that you need to look at when, when it gets to model robustness. And this is the bias-variance trade-off. 
Um, what we have over there is just exactly what we had on the previous page, but just putting it in the context of the bias variance uh, trade-off. So what we have on, on the graph specifically, far left side, is you've got a model that was underfitting. Far right-hand side, you've got a model that is overfitting. So you can see over there in, in the middle is where you've got the least generalization area, but you've got good capacity. And by good capacity, we're saying good predictive power, good accuracy, but then also that your model generalizes well to unseen data. And that's really that, that key point where you want to be in terms of, um, of the trade-off between accuracy and then, then uh, variance specifically. So just again contrasting traditional statistical models with machine learning and deep learning models. So traditional statistical models are more prone to, to large bias and, and low variance due to some of the assumptions made. And to highlight some of them, so log normal returns of stock prices, uh, independence of, of movements when modeling a, a stochastic process. For example, um, customers moving between different segments, uh, moving between different levels in a specific models. So these are a lot of assumptions that we have been forced to make historically uh, just to, to almost provide a nice closed form solution and, and to ensure, but that introduces a significant bias. While machine learning models, they don't make the same assumptions about data and statistical distributions than the, the story that the historical um, the statistical distributions do, like normality, Gaussian distributions, elliptical distributions, etc. They rather learn off of the data itself. So in other words, they capture what does the data say. There's there's no almost assumption behind a statistical assumption behind it. It's a process through which it learns, and it's just the, really the learning process which informs what the the model is going to do. So what's the risk then? It, this all sounds great if we don't have to make these assumptions. So what's the real risk then? Is the real risk with, with machine learning and deep learning models more specifically is, is overfitting. Uh, that's the real risk that we need to, to look at here is to make sure that, yes, you are training your, if you've got a training data set, that while you train it on this data, it also needs to generalize well. So when you put this model into production, you're actually using it to, for instance, to make um, decisions on whether to accept a, a policy holder, yes, no, to grant a loan, yes, no. So to predict claim rates, lapse rates, etc., is you really need to make sure that it um, is generalizing well to the unseen data that you will be providing it in in future so that's the, the really the, the key uh, aspect of it that we that we have here and uh, yeah really controlling overfitting of machine learning models can result if done correctly and the data allows you to uh, to it can result in low bias low variance models which is really where you want to be in in terms of the the optimal capacity so some techniques, so at, at this point, any questions uh, from yourselves on, on that specifically before we get into the techniques on, on diagnosing overfitting in a model? Yeah. So the, the question there was to say that do we have a, a, a simple real-world example of saying where overfitting can, can actually occur? So a, a lot of different examples, um, actually. So maybe uh, using one, so insurance should be the one that's, that's most uh, familiar um, to a lot of you. So if, if for example, you have been, um, let's, let's think, if you, you train your, your model, let's say you're trying to predict, predict lapse rates, um, and there is a consistent, there's high volatility in your data historically, but there's also a trend running through your, your lapse rate currently, right? 
So if you train and let's say it goes up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down quite significantly, but the overall trend is, is stable. So what overfitting would be is if you then almost expect that your lapse rates would also continue to go up, down, up, down, up, down consistently, while actually there's the trend is what you're going to, to see in future. So in what you're really trying to capture there is you're not trying to capture the volatility there, you're trying to capture what the trend is going to be. And that's really where the learning aspect comes in. So if you're overfitting, then you'll be overfitting to noise and you'll see, well, it's actually when the experience pans out, there's, um, you, you might have much less volatility than you historically had while you would have been predicting it. Does that make sense? Make it a bit more clear. Okay, sure. So then uh, on techniques in, in diagnosing overfitting, so your uh, train test curve divergence is, is quite a, a nice one. So what this is, and just providing context, is you've got your, your loss rate over there on the, the left-hand side, and what we really want is we want the loss rate to be as low as possible. So that's just really saying what's the, the validation loss. What we can see is two curves, one being on our training data set and one being on our test data set. And what we have on, on the uh, x-axis or horizontal axis is as we continue to train the models, in other words, we push the data through it multiple times and it continues learning on this data set. What we see is for both your train data set, because we're fitting it on the, just to be clear, we're fitting it on the training data set. As you continue training it, your uh, both of your curves dip down. So both your train curve and your test curve dip down. What you do see happening at higher intervals as you continue pu to push the data through is you see your train and your test curve diverging. So in other words, what then happens is it really starts picking up the fine noise in the detail and, and saying that you're really getting into the details now where early on you were really fitting on the, the big features, on the big movements, which result in that big dip in accuracy. And as you continue to force it to train more and more and more and more. It's just picking up on the small differences. So when you actually then generalize it to data that it hasn't seen before is really when it starts um, giving you divergent performance. So that's one way of, of picking up on, on overfitting and that your model is starting to overfit. Another quite uh, popular technique is, is K-fold cross-validation. So what careful cross-validation is, is it takes uh, various, so you've got the same uh, data population um, that you sample your data from. And what this is, is if you've got a fitted machine learning model, is you assess its performance on different subsets or different samples on, of this data. So the K over here represents how many samples you, you actually pull, whether that's five different validation data sets from your overall, overall population, or whether that's 100. You can split it in various different ways. So if you have uh, differing performance, significantly differing performance on different uh, data points within the, the validated sample which you pull. And that's also an indication that while it might have learned quite well on a limited sample, it doesn't actually generalize well when you change that sample. Because you, what you want to do is you want your model to be representative of the actual entire population. You don't want it to be representative of your specific sample that you have. So in other words, through um, pulling different samples and assessing performance on these different samples is one of the ways in which you can actually assess what the, um, whether your model is, is overfitting. 
or not. So this is techniques in, in diagnosing overfitting. So then we move on to, to controlling overfitting. And this is really where, where things get, get quite interesting, is because there are a number of techniques that you can use to control overfitting. It's something that historically there's also been a, a big risk in how do you control it. But I think the first port of call is on your algorithm choice specifically. That's really where you need to start before you really get into the detailed um, pieces of it, saying that if, over, if you anticipate overfitting is going to be an issue, then really Really think carefully about your algorithm choice. Something like a, a single decision tree, something like a boosting model. Um, so neural nets with multiple hidden layers, big neural nets, more likely to overfit than something like a, a random forest, for example, very much uh, diversification prone models is really where you want something. The more diversified your model is, the less prone it's going to be to, to overfitting. So that's your first port of call. It's really saying, what is the algorithm that I choose for this specifically? Second port of call is your architecture hyperparameters. So as Andre mentioned, the hyperparameters just being all your, your model characteristics that you can, you can choose and that you can tune um, outside necessarily of what the data actually provides you as, as parameters. So what you can do there is, uh, for example, and these are just a few examples, there's a lot of different uh, instances of this. But for instance, for a, a random forest or then a single decision tree, you can actually limit the tree depth for, for tree-based algorithms. So what that means is rather than if you've got, let's say, 10 point decision points in your decision tree, rather than it going down into the latest level of detail using all of your futures, splitting by every single possible way, you actually limit that tree depth to say that when we have reached a suitable level of accuracy or a level of loss that is acceptable, then we actually stop fitting. We just say you, it's accurate enough. Any accuracy over and above this point likely to be spurious and we will be overfitting. So another hyperparameter, more in the deep learning space, number of hidden layers for a neural network um, is something also that it adds a lot of complexity and you think it looks fancy, but really is the, are the additional layers capturing the complexity of the interrelationships in the data? If you put in one, two, three, if you go to four, five, six hidden layers in your neural network, you need to start asking yourself, are the relationships really that complex? Or is it just that you're actually overfitting and you're fitting to noise rather than the true signal itself? So uh, the number of other examples there, neurons per hidden layer, minimum gene impurity is, is some um, other measures that you can look at. Uh, regularization parameters, in, and these are for a lot of algorithms. They tend to work better um, and not in the non-deep learning space. Deep learning, you've got your, your own um, process there called uh, dropout rate. And I'll just briefly touch on, on each of these, um, such as zeroizing weights or, or equalizing weights, depending on L1 and L2, lasso regression, uh, bootstrapped uh, training data. So you, when you bootstrap your, your actual training data itself and you train off of different samples, that also generally helps with, with controlling overfitting because you're getting around that problem of not training to, to noise itself. Then early stopping during training, just saying that if you've reached a sufficient level of accuracy, don't go beyond that point because then you might be, be overfitting. Um, drop out in, in neural network, fascinating area in, in terms of just uh, making sure that you, you're not using the uh, underweighted and using where the, the weights do make sense. And then finally, batch, batch normalization. 
as I said, each of these topics are uh, really a, a field of, of study almost on their own, um, and we can spend a lot of time on them. I think the, the intention here is just really to say that there, there are a lot of techniques that you can use in, in controlling overfitting, and that uh, these are some of those, those specific techniques. So maybe just on uh, pausing on that point before we go on to fairness, just closing off robustness. Any, any questions um, there from a robustness uh, point of view? Any views? Yeah, sure, they're at the back. Hello. Yeah. Um, all right, so there's a paper that went out last year coming out of Ohio University, and they were talking about um, practitioners using deep neural networks um, sort of in everyday things. And typically what happens when you're fitting those, right, you drive the training error to zero. And those are basically interpolant models, so you can fit a value for each data point. But those models often still perform well on a withheld test set, um, and yeah, it kind of sort of yeah moves past the traditional bias, bias variance trade-off paradigm. I was wondering if you had thoughts on that or if you'd been exposed to that or what you think the risks of using a very deep network that might still have very good um, performance on a test set would be. Yeah, so yeah, clearly, I mean, uh, a big concern about uh, deep learning is uh, the risk of overfitting, and particularly the deeper the net goes. Uh, of course, it more it fit more accurately to the data points, but you know, you start you start uh, getting overfitting. Having said that, I think the, the deep the neural nets probably has got the most uh, knobs and levers to to turn and tweak to to prevent overfitting. In actual fact, all of these techniques, you know, batch normalization is, is a very good technique uh, for controlling overfitting. Just by selecting, uh, you know, random batches with uh, some guys in distribution around it, uh, and you're training the next uh, level of the epoch. So, so there are a lot of, 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 of techniques. I think the, uh, I don't think one can really generalize and say deep, deep learning is going to overfit and it's not going to, you know, I think you, you can build a very accurate model and you know, going going deeper uh, with deep nets and you know still control overfitting. Uh, all depends on on the problem. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. I haven't specifically read the, that paper. Um, I do think it's it's quite difficult to just say that the bias variance framework doesn't apply anymore. Uh, it's, it's quite a, a bold statement. So um, I think there is still going to be a, a trade-off of sorts there. It's just how, how you look at that trade-off specifically and what the key components of it and what's more relevant, I think, is really a, another way of, of thinking it rather than saying it, it doesn't apply. But yeah, interesting interesting conversation nonetheless. So on, on fairness, uh, moving over here, and, and I think fairness is, is quite a hot topic in, in machine learning and, and AI is really coming down to the trustworthiness part of it. So, and, and what we mean here by fairness is there are a lot of different definitions of fairness. I think that's one of the, the key items to start with is what we also don't want to do today is we don't want to take a position on what is fair and what is not fair. Uh, it's, I think, what really what we're trying to do is to say that there are techniques of assessing fairness and you need to see what is specifically relevant for what you are trying to do and what is fair in the context of the problem that you're faced with. That's a, a key point where all of the models and all of the techniques in the world won't be able 
to to help you is in, in assessing that and using your own judgment, which is also something that the, the models wouldn't necessarily be able to do on their own because they don't know what is fair. They train off of the data and they do as they're told. And it really is up to you to have the right techniques and the right tools in your toolbox um, to make sure that that is um, what you are actually busy doing rather than thinking you, you're being fair and, and it not necessarily being, being the case. So then when it, it comes to fairness is I think it's worthwhile splitting it out into three different levels, essentially, as we think about it, is uh, a lot has been said in, in the media around the, the data input itself and whether the, the input is, is fair. Uh, and I think that is, is a significant area where a lot of attention needs to be spent in terms of making sure that if the model only learns off of the data which it is fed, what is the conclusion it's going to come to? And that's really the, the first point in terms of assessing fairness where you need to start is to say that the, the data that I'm actually feeding the model, because we know the model is going to learn off of the data, is going to train on it. So is the data that we are faced with, is that biased or is it unbiased? Are there certain aspects to it? And this is really where you need to analyze the data for in influence of, of some variables. And this is also to say that, um, let's say for example, and it very much again depends on the use case, what is deemed as fair, not fair, um, protected, unprotected. Um, but if we say that for example, uh, let's say uh, gender is a, a sensitive variable in a specific application, as, as we've seen uh, in the media recently, um, it's really saying that is it enough to also just remove gender, for example, as a variable in your, in your data set? Because a lot of people will say, but gender isn't in the data set anymore. The question you do need to ask yourself is, are there any other pieces in the data, or are there any other variables in your data set which are strongly correlated? Um, to, to gender, for example, to say that if you're really committed to removing gender from the equation, you also need to assess what the relationship between gender and other variables in, in your data set actually, actually is. So that's the, the first item. Then on, on model design is the, the second piece where some, some bias could be, could be introduced is um, over there, in, and this really kind of boils down to your modeling technique and, and how you look at it and what the, the technique itself um, is and, and what it's currently doing. So saying at that, at that design phase is also where you need to look and say, uh, are the is all the workings of the model. So if you just look at how it is, it is constructing itself and you're interpreting the model, is there bias in the way that it is predicting is the, the second step. And then the third step really is on the model output piece is to say that while you think your inputs might have been unbiased, the design of the model itself and the workings of the model might have been unbiased, the output itself could actually also be biased. So what we're trying to say is you need to assess it at these three levels um, to make sure that at the various pieces there's, there's no bias, that it's not just good enough to say one of these components is, is unbiased essentially. 
So just then briefly touching on, on some of the, the bias matrix. And I think here really it's, it's more about the concept than, than getting into the, the details of each of these specifically, but we will touch on the, the details um, briefly. Is first one is called statistical parity difference. Um, it's, it's really very, very simple for most of these, uh, most of these matrics is that we essentially just have um, what is if you've got a protected and an unprotected subset of your data. So let's say if the, the protected population is the, the piece that you really don't want to create bias against. It's saying is the probability of it being in where Y is just a, it's just a classification problem essentially is to say that is it being classified, yes or no, to say that what is the probability of your protected subset of your data being flagged versus what is the probability of the unprotected um, subset of your data being flagged? It's a very simple measure, but it is quite accurate in capturing whether you are, yes? So, so protect in this instance is if we say, let's say gender is, for example, a protected variable that you don't want to create bias against or you don't want to create uh, dis discriminate against. And, and as I said, it very much depends on the uh, specific context of the problem that you're faced with. Um, and there are a lot of variables which you would actually want to protect. So this is just saying we've got a subset of the population that we don't almost want to create, create bias against. And yeah, that's that's what is meant by by protected um, is that you want it to be close to zero. So you would have some sort of a, a error threshold where you want to keep the difference between that prediction below this error threshold or, or as close to zero as possible. Then, uh, equal opportunity difference is a slightly different way of looking at it. It's it has more uh, dimensions to it. So where statistical parity difference just essentially is the probability of it being flagged is you use your your true positive rate, which is just for for the number of actual positive classifications, which how many did you correctly classify? And this is then again saying that for your protected versus your unprotected subsets of your data are the true positive rates for the two of them more or less equal? So that's just saying is, is your uh, prediction accuracy more or less the same for the two of them? So what you don't want to do is you don't want to create variants where you say you predict very accurately on one subset of your data, but you are predicting inaccurately on another subset of your data. So while the probabilities might be similar, the true positive rates might actually be out. So that's again saying is that there are, there are various different ways of actually looking at it, and it depends on your application, what is, what is the most appropriate. Average absolute odds difference, again, just adds another dimension in there, bringing in false positive rates. Um, I won't spend uh, too much time on there, but similar to equal opportunity difference, just bringing in again saying that while your probabilities might be fine, your true positive rates might look fine, just taking the flip side of it and bringing in your false positive rates, saying how does that compare? Uh, disparate impact is very similar to statistical parity difference. Uh, it's just a slightly way, different way of measuring it. Then the Thiel index is something that's used in, in a variety of other fields. It's almost an inequality uh, measure as it started out with, and this is just really measuring is what is almost the, the deviation from, from the mean um, of your predictor for, for various different uh, aspects. And your, your specific application will really uh, define which of these metrics you, you want to use. Um, but I think the key message from, from our side is that you want to take a look at all of them and make sure that in the context of your application that it's really where, where you want to be. So I'm going to hand over to, to Andre briefly to just uh, talk about the fairness model build pipeline. Okay, so I think if you start getting into machine learning, and you guys probably are there already, but 
One thing you start realizing, it's actually very simple to build a machine learning model. These algorithms are extremely powerful. There's so many of them available. It's open source. I mean, you can, all you have to do is code in Python, know some math, and you know, and uh, you can turn out these models very quickly. In fact, the feedback we get now from our US uh, engagements with large US banks, two weeks, average two weeks to build a machine learning model and credit or fraud in any of these areas. However, thereafter, it's a much bigger challenge. Now I have to debias the model, right? So this is where this whole oh, famous pipeline come in. You got a model, it's got a very accurate prediction, but there's bias. And as Angus now shown, uh, not too difficult to, to, assert, to diagnose the bias, applying these metrics, but what do you do now? Not, not a, a trivial problem to solve. And then after you've taken out a bias, now you have to address the interpretability issues. So you start seeing now that the whole machine learning development life cycle looks a lot different. Very quick building of models and fitting algorithms, and a lot of time and effort and large teams thereafter to debias these models and ensure interpretability and so forth. So a couple of things you can do. I mean, you know, you've got a traditional machine learning pipeline. Now you can, there's several techniques that you can, as we listed here, that can be, and these are algorithms in their own right, that can be uh, applied to mitigate a bias or devise a model. And you can really apply them at the data input stage, uh, fairness pre-processing, or you can apply them in the in-processing, fitting an algorithm that's uh, fairness sensitive and actually takes fairness into account in its in classification and predictions. Or you can uh, apply them, you know, post on the, on the outputs of, of your, your normal model, uh, apply some techni techniques there to do devising. Now, these techniques um, are, range from sort of fairly simple ones to very, very complex ones. In fact, some of these you're going to use the more sophisticated deep neural networks, uh, sort of later generation of variational order encoders, et cetera, to do this kind of debiasing. Um, so it's outside of the scope. I mean, I don't want to get into them. It's all day on its own, and it's, it's kind of complex. Uh, Reweighing is a very simple technique. In fairness, pre-processing, all you really do there is using this upsampling and downsampling smoke to any of these type of techniques to create some, some balance in your data sets that eliminate the, the kind of bias impact. A more sophisticated approach there would be to use these deep, deep neural nets, uh, representation learning, to learn a, a fair representation of, of the data in a latent space, which you can then use to build a model. It gets very complex. In processing, again, uh, adversarial debiasing is a technique developed by Google. It's actually building two neural networks back to back. The one is trying to predict, uh, maximize the prediction accuracy. The other model is trying to use that prediction uh, to minimize the accuracy in predicting the sensitive variable. And they train back to back. Very, very works very effectively. You can maintain accuracy, but you know, eliminate a lot of the bias. Uh, prejudice remover regularizer, similar to regularization that Denk has talked about before, which everybody is familiar with. Your normal regularization adds a, a penalization factor term to your error term in, in, in the optimization. Here you just add a fairness sensitive term in, in that optimization during the regularization process. It can also work very effectively. On the output side, you know, you have a confusion matrix, you have uh, true positive, false positives, and you, you, know, you construct your normal uh, AUC curve. 
And what you can do, you can just recalibrate that. You can construct the uh, RLC curve for protected groups and then just use different thresholds. Use a 50% normal threshold for protected groups, of unprivileged groups, you use a 30% threshold to, to, to calibrate that. So there are various ways, and sometimes you're going to have to use more than one. You're going to apply fairness pre-processing techniques and find out it doesn't work, so you have to apply them later on. It can get very complex and can consume a lot of time in our machine learning development pipeline. So let's show you some outputs. Thanks, uh, Andre. Um, apologies for, for running slightly late. We'll just probably take another 10 minutes of your, your time. Um, running into lunch, I don't think. I uh, hope you can sacrifice 10 minutes of your lunch. If not, then you're, you're welcome to, uh, to leave the session early. <laughs> so um, just we're quickly going to, to touch on a, a, a case study for a model build. Um, so this was done on census data where we had a uh, we had 40,000 records split into training test sets, 75-25. So a number of uh, sensitive variables uh, in there. And this is just a, a simple object of trying to say whether your income is going to be greater than $50,000, yes, no, uh, depending on the, the specific features. So random forest classifier was fitted on the training data and then predictions made on the, the uh, test data set. So confusion matrix is a bit small there at the bottom. Um, apologies, but that's just showing us how the classifications did on the, the test set. Um, so relatively relatively accurate there. And as you can see from the, the ROC curve over the 91% accuracy, which is which is quite uh, quite good for uh, for a model like this. So just in, in visualizing what the fairness matrix would actually look like, is we would see for a number of these instances, is the the model is uh, above the thresholds. So from a statistical parity difference point of view, if you've got some uh, classes that you uh, potentially um, want to want to predict, then it would be above the thresholds. In other words, it's not close to zero. Uh, equal opportunity difference, similarly, average absolute odds difference um, with uh, it, it being you know, one of the uh, protected variables being slightly over and under. But I think the, the message is clear, is just in terms of visualizing this and, and how you can do it. So I think what we also want to do and the key message here is to say that while generally um, reducing or increasing fairness has a... Uh, accuracy penalty, so getting a, a more fair model would result in a less accurate model. That is not necessarily always the case. So also, as, we, as you can see there, there are a number of algorithms uh, to improve fairness and that the, the fairness score actually improves depending on the, the specific algorithm. What you can see on the left-hand side is that they don't necessarily all have the same impact on accuracy. So something like equalized odds, for example, they had a big impact on fairness while the impact on accuracy itself was actually very, very small. Uh, so in, in terms of saying that you need to try a lot of these techniques to see what gives you the best fairness lift while not impacting your, your accuracy uh, negatively. And that's, I think, what we wanted to show. So going to hand over to, to Andre now on just briefly touching on interpretability and explainability. Okay, good. So I think we saw, we saw now with the bias case, it's really a trade-off. You know, there's always going to be bias. The bank you know, or insurer has to decide what, what amount of bias am I willing to live with? Because there's always going to be bias. It's a trade-off. You're going to eliminate all bias, reduce all, take all sensitive variables out. It's going to have a big impact on accuracy. So the, the holy grail really yeah, is to come up and eliminate fairness, but not to, to impact accuracy 
uh, to a great extent. It's the finer trade-off. Now, interpretability is another key, and again, we, we, we have some time constraints here, so I'm going to try and move fast. But it's really a very, very key aspect of machine learning algorithms. I mean, traditionally, uh, four, four or five years ago, if you would speak to anybody and say, you know, what about neural nets? Have you ever used that to model uh, scorecards in credit? They would tell you, like, black box, we can't interpret, we can't explain the, the predictions to anybody, so we don't even look at it. Well, things are starting to change in this space. And uh, uh, I think we also need to just distinguish slightly between machine learning and deep learning. There are techniques available now. They're more mature in the machine learning space. They're still evolving in, in the deep learning space. But, you know, there are ways now to, to actually unpack the black box and to, to understand the predictions. So we're going to try and, and uh, you know, show you some of those and, and how those techniques work. Now, interpretability, well, you know, traditional logistic regression or GLM-type models, it's, it's a fairly simple thing. I mean, you have a, a known mathematical function that you try to fit. Uh, you have parameters that you've optimized, and once you've done that, you know exactly uh, the relationship between predictive variables and response variables, uh, and you can easily explain the reasons for a prediction uh, and what contributed it or not. Now, problems with AI and machine learning, uh, well, the, the algorithm in itself will actually find a function. It will find a so-called universal approximation function that gets the best mapping, most optimum mapping from predictive variables to response variables. The only problem, it doesn't write down that function for you and tell, tell you what it is. You don't know what it is. Uh, I mean, you can try and, and back it out, and there's ways to do that, to actually use a simple model to try and back out what, what exactly that mapping function is, but it's not generally known. And likewise, in outputs, you don't have any relationship between predictive variables um, you know, and response variables, also not part of the model definition. And then you typically have this problem of ensemble or multiple models actually being combined with actually accurately situated. So in interpretability, we, we typically look at two aspects. I mean, it's kind of like the question, can I trust the model, right? Uh, and that's how to, you know, can I, we explain the, the variables and their importance and you know, how the model does its prediction over the total data set. And then the next question you try and ask, well, can I trust the next uh, prediction of the model? So for a prediction, a client with a certain uh, input variable uh, vector, uh, what is that prediction and, you know, what is the reasons and contributions for coming to, to that prediction? So you always do, do both of these. Now, so-called global interpretability is typically done with a feature importance algorithm. Uh, and that works very well for machine learning, for deep learning, you know, a little bit different. We'll get to that just now. And, and typically, the, the kind of feature importance algorithm outputs that's available, you know, is something like that that provides you with a ranking, relative ranking of the features. Now, right, the relative ranking is the feature impact on the response variable, um, and a relative ranking, ranking of those. And in this particular example, we, we use the uh, I think a loan data set and use the SHAP algorithm, the furious algorithms available. And it you know, shows the, the features that were most important that we used in a, in a prediction year. Uh, credit FICO score inquiries last six months, so it kind of make intuitively sense. The problem with these algorithms, if you start, when you start using them, you'll find out there's some issues with them. They're all available in an open, uh, open source space. 
and you, you can run into repeatability problems with these algorithms. And it's very simple. Uh, the way these algorithms work is not to, do, you know, you, you take one takes one feature, make a prediction, take another feature and see how much the prediction changes, then add another one and so on. The problem you're running into is that you know, the sequence in which you select the features also impact on the prediction. So that's a typical problem. The one that addresses all of those issues is one called SHAP. It's based on work that was done by a guy named Lord Shapley in the 50s already. Uh, but it's actually using all the possible combinations. Uh, so it comes up with a marginal contribution, average marginal contribution of all the, all the features to the, to the response variable across all the permutations. Now, in, in these Python libraries, um, you know, that could add up to a large amount of processing time, but they become very efficient and, you know, applying a sharp algorithm on a sort of fair-sized problem not going to take you longer than maybe an hour processing even on a, on a small GPU laptop. Okay, so once we know now what, what overall, what a model as uh, features is used in, 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 in coming to the prediction, the second problem we now have to deal with is this one of, of the local interpretation. So that's just taking a single predi prediction of the model and actually, you know, now try and interpret that. Uh, the, this, you know, it's just not typical outputs, it's just come with the machine learning model uh, output, it will give you the future importance that we, we saw before. So the way that's been done is by using a, a so-called surrogate model uh, as an interpreter model. Uh, surrogate models are, are very, very important constructs in data science. They use in many fields, also in hyperparameter optimization, etc. But in essence, what you try and do here, you take a complex model, like black box model, like HGBoost, any of those, uh, and then you fit a simple linear regression model on top of it to actually proxy it and, you know, interpret its predictions. And the algorithm would typically, you know, from for the vector, input vector you selected, do some perturbation around the, the values of the input uh, fields um, and create a sample of data. And then actually in the algorithm use the black box model to use that data, input data to make predictions. And while it's doing that, we'll fit a linear regression over those data inputs and the predictions. And at the end, it will actually give you a very nice, simple, interpretable uh, linear regression model, which you can use to, to, uh, to explain the, the predictions. And typically, this is the type of, of output that you would get. Now, again, in open source space, there's a few of these algorithms available. This one is Lime, called Lime. It's, it's actually fairly popular. Uh, popular. And uh, uh, what is also very nice about them is the fact that they're algorithm agnostic. So it doesn't really matter what type of algorithm you use. It could be a random forest. The black box algorithm itself could you know, be anything from a support vector machine, random forest, extra boost, or whatever. It will still fit this, uh, this interpreted model on top. And the kind of output you would get is, you know, sort of familiar with the GLM type space. You will get... Uh, all the features uh, weighted with their positive and negative contributions, and you know one can interpret that and see if it makes sense. And you know uh, this particular example, pick up uh, grade, risk grade, and uh, debt to income ratio as positive com contributions to to default. Um, the problem again is remember now you have a proxy model that does interpretations, you have a black box model that does predictions. So if these two, two gets out of sync or your, your interpreter model is not a good 
approximation of the of the actual black box model, it you know it leads can lead to another layer model risk. So what you have to do is then just run you know do a prediction, track this you know run through your total data set and do predictions on both the surrogate model as well as the actual prediction model and see if they if they track uh, one another relatively well. Uh, of course, there's a lot of nonlinear relationship now that the the, interpre the interpreter model, the surrogate model, is not going to pick up. But remember, you do this per individual prediction. So you have to fit the surrogate model for each and every prediction. So it takes a bit of processing time, but you know it, it works and you, you can get some interpretations out. Now, a second related question here, yeah, I mean, you've got now interpretation is all issue of explainability. Well, you know, we've, we've got a prediction, but, and we can explain a prediction, but we still don't know how the algorithm actually got to that. You know, is the decision path that it's actually followed in coming to, to that prediction is, is not, not known. So in the tree algorithm space, um, there is a, it's a nice algorithm here called tree interpreter, which you can actually use to, to give you some insights into the decision path of, of the model. So here you can pick uh, tree interpreted algorithm to actually explain the prediction between one node to one layer in, in, in the tree structure to the next. Um, so as you, you know, go down into the tree and the algorithm, you know, split the variables, it will actually improve in its prediction. In this case, it started off at the previous level with a 21.91% default probability, actually improved that, uh, and you can see uh, from a three interpreter algorithm would actually give you the positive and negative contributions weighted of the various features uh, of that prediction uh, improvement. Deep learning explainability is uh, an interpretability is, is a key challenge. This is still the, it's a new space. It's evolving because of the complexities of neural nets, uh, many hidden layers. You know you don't have a one-to-one -one mapping between input uh, input uh, variables and neurons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's, it's, it's uh, probably going to still take a while before we, we reach full maturity into this area. Uh, so there's a couple of, of techniques that, that's starting to emerge. Uh, you know, we, we see a lot of research in this space. The likes of FICO, biggest scorecard builder in the world, they've come up with an algorithm, uh, a proprietary algorithm. They've registered a, a, a patent in the US because uh, they're so excited about uh, finding. And there's a lot of uh, research going on that. But one, one of the techniques that's actually quite interesting that we started to look at here is the so-called contrastive explanation method. Uh, you know, it works for, for deep uh, neural nets. And what, what algorithm does, it, it actually identifies pertinent positives uh, and pertinent negatives. So if you have a loan that's been declined, it will actually you know, then identify the features that contribute uh, to, to that uh, decline type decision, but it would also show you our, our values or cutoff values in those features that would have changed that decision. Hence the, the so-called con contrastive explanations method. Uh, so here's just some example of such a contrastive CEM type method. In this case, it's a, a line of credit default prediction uh, that's actually you know, show a decline. Uh, of loan above the threshold that was selected. And running the CEM algorithm, it will actually show you the features, uh, pertinent and negative features and their importance and their weights that contribute to the decision, but also provide you some output in terms of uh, cutoff 
values that would have changed the decision. So, so the loan application would have been accepted if Exxon's estimate, for, for instance, increased from 65 to 76, and some, some other variables uh, increased. So uh, you can also apply that on, on, on a positive side where, you know, the loan was approved, but it will give you some cut of values that say the loan would have still been approved if these features had certain values. So it's, it's exciting space. There's a lot happening in, in that area. And uh, the, the conclusion that we can reach, I think, based on just in summary, is that technology is, is moving at a rapid pace. It's not likely to slow down. It's really starting to get traction in, you know, also in the regulated space. So we really have to, as, as, as actuaries and risk professionals, uh, start to get the grips with, with these techniques that we've showed you. I think actuaries can play a, a fantastic role, I believe, in making huge contribution exactly in these areas of model trustworthiness and being on top of these techniques and interpretability and bias and fairness, et cetera. There's a lot of money to be made and your skills are gonna be in huge demand. And uh, we believe the, the technology is now, you know, we, we're at the kind of uh, tipping point here in the sense that, you know, what was black box before is not black box anymore. There are ways to address the black box issue, there are ways to, to manage and eliminate the bias. And, you know, there are the right topic techniques and, and, and approaches and skills, uh, these AI performance risks uh, can be controlled. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Andre. Then lastly, we'll be unpacking all of these uh, topics in more detail, so a full half-day session at our next, our second Responsible AI seminar is the 20th of November, so we generally invite our, our clients and, and uh, risk professionals. So, uh, so far, it has been focused on more on the banking side, but I think all of the topics themselves are um, applicable to uh, a variety of other fields as well. It's just about generalizing the issue. So all of you are, are invited. Um, it'll be hosted at our offices 20th of November at, at, at no cost whatsoever. Um, it's an investment that we're making from our side, and what we'll essentially be doing is recapping some of these, but then just going into to a, a higher level of detail, exploring more topics and, and getting into some more detail on this. So all of you are welcome to attend. Please pop us a mail um, on this if you'd like to attend or anything else if you're interested in having a discussion, us having a, a chat with you. Um, coffee is free. So uh, yeah, thanks so much for, for joining and the time. Apologies for, for running over. And yeah, we will be around after the session if anyone wants to come and have a chat. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day.